Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Mike Duda, founder and one of the managing partners at Bullish. I first heard about Mike and Bullish on his episode of Invest Like the Best, and that episode was an inspiration for this podcast, so I'm particularly excited that we were able to have this conversation. Bullish is a creative agency and a pre-seed fund investing in early-stage consumer companies. Some of their investments include Warby Parker, Peloton, Casper, and Birchbox. Prior to founding Bullish, Mike spent 13 years at Deutsch Inc., where he became the youngest partner in the company's 35-year history, overseeing business development, marketing, and corporate strategy. This is a really, really fun conversation. So without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you during these difficult times? You know what? Just trying to combine some sanity with some levity and and make some sense of it all. But uh, thanks for having me. And uh, let's let's have a little bit of fun today. Sounds good. So what compelled you to start Bullish? Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to be on something called the Consumer VC because I'm probably the least qualified VC you've ever had on here since the only job I could get in the industry was creating a company that does it. So um, there's, there's ways around everything. But um, yeah, you said average, I'm, I'm a, I'm a madman. Not that literally I don't drink brown spirits, but uh, I grew up in the advertising industry, public relations. Uh, I've done a ton of Super Bowl commercials and worked on some of the biggest brands in the world. And, you know, along the way, I realized, as much as I love our craft of marketing and advertising, I also realized is like marketing would be put in a nice little bucket that's an expense. One of the first things that you cut in a recession or pandemic, although there's more rightful cause in that one. Um, and it wasn't really given its respect as something that could be moat building. And that kind of ticked me off. And yeah, when I looked into it, Wall Street was kind of right in that the marketing agencies make their money and their living on fees for time for outputs with no correlation to an outcome. And the last I checked, no business is bonused on how good the ads were or anything like that. The bonus on bottom line sales. So, you know, funny timing given what we're living through now, but the, the day after the market dropped, 777 points in 2008, I, I quit. And listen, I was, I was at a company, I was the youngest partner there in the 40 year history, I had a great living. I had the wife, two kids, white picket fence and all that stuff. And I just, there was something stuck that I just couldn't get out of and I, uh, that I wanted to stand up for the sport of marketing and brand. And uh, I didn't want to be that guy years later saying, I had this idea and blah, blah, and didn't do a damn thing about it. So I was stupid enough and naive enough to pursue my passions and dreams. And so created something then called Consigliere Brand Capital, where it was a marketing management consultancy, but we'd put money into the game. And, uh, you know, over the course of 10 years later, and then some, it's just, uh, here we are. But I, I just, I'm a firm advocate that the marketing brand and consumer-centric thinking done well can be moat building. And, and that's what we're out to prove every day. Yeah, I get that in terms of looking back and, and asking yourself, what if? So what qualities do you look for in founders? And if you could talk a little bit about your due diligence process. Sure. So first thing, we, we, we're we B2C investors. We only invest in consumer propositions, um, period, US-based. I think we've grown to the point that we will do things now pre-seed. We, we invest in the pre-seed, seed, and we'll do a fall into Series A. We're, we're the $250,000 check writers that um, nothing can be too early. And from a diligence process, you know, I'll say a couple fancy steps, and then the punchline of the joke is probably what everyone else says. But one of the things we look at, is there an ad- advocacy deficiency in this category? You know, there's something like 220 or 230 different consumer categories out there. Literally, toilet paper is a category. Paper towels is a category. So when we see something, is there something that just like kind of stayed in old and meh about it? I think Mavron and Jason says it's, you know, NPS deficiencies, which I think is well said. Two, is there a journey deficiency? You know, why are we buying things a certain way? Like, why are razors locked up behind something in a Walgreens or CBS? Why do we have to go in front of some fat guy in a mattress store and with my wife in, in an island of these things and just lay down, which is not the way it is? Why do I have to go to the gym? Why can't fitness be brought into my home? Three, is, is there some sort of service opportunity? You know, is there a gap between the brand and the consumer that can be closed by operationalizing with more empathy? And we've seen this with what we call the DTC 3.0 crowd, like, buy, you know, give a pair, buy, buy a pair, give a care. I'll get that one right. A uh, hundred days back. 
Um, if you don't look after 100 days, we'll give you your money back. And then is there a branding opportunity? Is there something that just like is embedded into the product or service in some way, shape or form that you just can't, you know, that, that is just ownable out of the gate? It's a sexy Peloton bike with a 21-inch tablet on it. It's when Casper came out, it was just like this mattress that just like unfolded in your room so you can get it within three days of ordering, not 10 to 12 weeks. And then the exponential factor, drum roll please, chip on the shoulder entrepreneur. It's the founders and the team, especially a pre-seed. When you have something of a prototype or you have an idea, it's the damn people. And it's amazing over the years, if you look at, uh, at, at our track record, we are blessed when you have people like Katia Beecham and Haley Barna, who's now first round, and John Foley and Jeff Rader. These people make us look a hell of a lot smarter on the investment front than, than, than we really are. It's the people. And, and in, in times like, are they going to be able to weather this storm? Are they going to be able to like be agile enough to change when something happens, no matter what it is on that side? So it's just, you invest in people at the end of the day. And th th those are the tops of the notes. There's, there's certainly things on the supply side and the macroeconomic side. But one of the things I'm proud that we don't study that much is TAM. I think TAM could be the most overrated metric out there, like total addressable market. What was the TAM that Peloton was going after? They're going after like this, this dorky company in Utah that sold these 1980-looking stationary bikes, of which a million seven were sold each year, and they sat in basements and they weren't cool. Peloton has disrupted consumer fitness, period. And, and, and we're obviously taping this during a pandemic, which is notable, but it just, that just changed consumer behavior. And when things can change consumer behavior, we get excited. So we think TAM could be too limiting, although it's always wonderful to start off any presentation, as we see at Y Combinator, we are addressing a three trillion gazillion billion market. And if we get 1%, oh Jesus, disruptive consumer just can change consumer behavior, much of that. So that, I wanted to stress one of the things that we don't take as seriously. Although we'll say like how high is up at the same time. That's really interesting to hear because some of the other investors that came on talk about how the market slide is certainly one of the slides that, that they most pay attention to. Yeah, and, and listen, the, the mistakes we've made over the years, I should really say that I've made over the years, when we were first getting involved, I was like, I was trying to act like what a real VC would, and uh, which is hilarious because I'm not intellectually gifted, among other things. But I, you know, the, the people I credit the most to, if it weren't for first round capital, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so many people are generous. Like in the advertising business, it's cutthroat. You know, for one company to win, everyone else must fail. In the VC landscape, done well, it's like you have club deals where people surround some the founding team and the how can we be helpful to build your company, whatever that is, and. The generosity of first round capital, and, and I, I literally get teary-eyed um, when I talk about it. They were doing this thing called office hours, and it was like, we're talking about 10, 11 years ago. And that was when it was a thing, and then everyone else ripped it off, and I think we're ripping that off now too. And I, and I went to this bar, Live Bait in New York, and you got 10 minutes. And I, I was there, and I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, I'm dressed up, I'm, I'm clearly like this dorky white guy, and I see all these 20 somethings who hadn't shaved for three days, like Google engineers. And they were like all excited. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And then I remember Brent Burson, who's an intern at the time, came up and said, okay, you, you're number 44. You're going to be with Josh Koppelman. And, uh, and I remember I spent 10 minutes with Josh Koppelman and went through this idea of like this investing thing that would do consumer VC, but do marketing. And after 10 minutes, he's like, he gave me his card. He's like, I think you have a good idea. Let me know if I could be helpful. I walked out and it was like, if you cue dumb and dumber, Jim Carrey, it was like, I called my wife and he said, he's saying I got a chance. Like he did, he didn't call me a fucking moron or anything like that, which was, was liberating. And I, I remember then uh, there was a big article written in business week uh, by Spencer Ante about first round, which was democratizing seed stage investing. And this is, again, 10, 11 years ago. And they were holding office hours in San Francisco. And I remember taking a day off of work, flying in the back seat in the middle, which you know I wasn't as used to back given my, my position was, and uh, attending a 10-minute session at first round in, in San Francisco. And uh, when I walked in, I remember leaving at 6 in the morning, landed at 9.30. I think it started at noon, so I kind of hung out. I walked in, it was like a land of broken toys. You had like 60 something year old guys in three piece suits. You had a 19 year old with a rock'em sock'em robot that went into Chris Freilich's office. You had it, and it was just wonderful. And just to hear the stories of all these different people and what they were trying to do, it was great. And, um, and I remember this, there were 78 companies or, or the founding ideas that showed up that day. Three of them got more than those 10 minutes and one of them got 90 minutes. 
and I was the one that got 90 minutes. And Kent Goldman spent time, uh, Finn Barnes spent time, Chris Freilich, um, Christine Heron was at the time, and I just, they didn't have to do that, and they did. And so from the amount of things that I've learned um, the right way, it's just, it's just always keep that generosity chip because they didn't have to do it, and they did. And, and so when I look at first round capital, I don't think they get the, um, I, I don't think they get the credit they deserve for, for inspiring a lot bigger ideas, uh, a lot more ideas, I should say, a lot more ideas than just the investments they've made. They've impacted people like me, us, and, and many, many others. And I wish I could say I didn't make the mistakes I have along the way, which were like, look for other people's validation in the beginning. Well, we'll say, oh, first round's investing it. Oh, then I should invest in it too. And then you realize the more you're contrarian, the more you're outlier, and you you worry less about cap table validation and more for consumer vindication, you're going to be okay. And it took a while to do that, but uh, that's that's where I think we are today. So thank you for allowing me to share some old man stories of back in my day. Oh, Mike, you should have seen me. Woo! Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of great investors out there, and I don't want to turn this to an autobiography like people Satya Patel and Beth Pereira and, and so many others. But uh, in these podcasts, you so often, like, I'm trying to come off as smart, it's like, which is hilarious because that'll get undone pretty quickly but just the other day it's just like I'm um wherever I am is a culmination from the experiences and the people around me good bad and otherwise and just like they're great and they didn't necessarily invent venture capital they didn't do it but I I think and there's people like Ron Conway obviously but they they really helped commercialize it in in the right way and um cheers to you first round capital now enough with them I'm not one of their LPs we're competing against them now but it's like they uh I have to give credit where credit's due. If, I, if I'd listened better, we'd probably be more successful today, but we're, we're doing okay. That's amazing how you started Bullish and the generosity of first round. You said something interesting about when you first started investing, about how, how you were looking over your shoulder and you know who's on the cap table and really learning from those mistakes. Do you have an example of where you invested it that way? Yeah, I think you, the question almost leads to the answer. It's just like, you know, it, there's been a couple of times where, where it's hard not to be in a seduced by FOMO. And yet, I don't think that's anything where the mistakes we've made. It's quite the opposite. It's, it's, I think we've made a couple investments, and I've, I've come to this realization over the past year or so that, you know what, we didn't have the most conviction on there, but you know what, let's put a check in just so we can see what happens and, and be in there versus make less investments and just going with deeper conviction with them. And I, I don't mean that in any way to disparage any of our companies. We will spend more time with our troubled portfolio companies than are great ones that go where the help is. But, you know, sometimes contrarian conviction means like, you know what, if you're going to write a check, write a damn check and, and don't write a small check, go, go in on it because we're, we're supposed to be in the crazy asset class, right? We're, we're supposed to be like exponential and where we look at 10 X returns uh, for investors so far today, we've either gotten a 20 plus uh, certainly where we, we Peloton was great. Um, 22x after three and a half years and then we have a bunch of zeros and so you know what, what we aren't is the spray and pe- spray and pray early stage investor which is which is good i mean we're mo- almost like micro growth private equity but it's just i'd say the biggest mistake is just like use conviction and go all in you know when i look back to when we invested in peloton that was like crazy you know my father-in-law thought i was an idiot for investing in birchbox for the first couple of years and then it starts getting some commercial success and it's like oh my god it's a genius and so you know the things i'm excited about right now um are, are probably things that won't become famous till 2021 or 22 but you know you have to plant literally plant seeds for redwoods to grow tomorrow and um but, but i'd say there's some that we, we could have more conviction on and then there's a few others where quite frankly we missed uh, d and co we missed because we were putting together our next fund and and haley introduced us to the founders and i loved them and Within two weeks, they went from raising money to being three times um, spoken for. And we just couldn't move fast enough. And there was a couple of times in 2019 where scheduling became an issue, which is ridiculous. And there were some high potential entrepreneurs. And um, uh, I'll say who they are. They were Hilma and Studs and, and just couldn't get around to them in time, which is stupid. And we didn't get into those. They might have hated me anyway at some certain point in time. I, I, I don't want to speak, but like, God damn it. It's the it's things like the things I can control. If, if we pass on something, one of my favorite stories is we passed on Stitch Hooks in 2013. And it wasn't so much we passed. We didn't take a, a, a serious meeting with Katrina because we had something else in our portfolio that was in, in a similar, very similar concept. 
um, actually for men. And I said, I, I think this is a conflict that I, I just don't want to do that. And I come from the marketing side, conflicts are very important. And Katrina said, uh, had an email saying like, we don't look at the conflict. Like I would, I'd rather side with the entrepreneurs or our portfolio and, and maybe miss. And so I think every year uh, in, in mid to late April, um, I, I have it in my calendar. I take the anniversary of her last note to me and I say, dear Katrina, I am stupid. Have a great day. And I think I've done that for seven straight years. She's responded once or twice with a smiley face and she doesn't have to, but it's just one of those things. But, but I can sleep at night. I, I wish I'd Zen Stitch Fix. They're awesome and it's just amazing. But like for the reason did it, maybe there was slight naivete, but quite frankly, if, if on things like that, I just you can't lose sleep. It's like, the, what are the things I can control? And it's like, be quicker to the ball, assess and and that. So I, we maybe make unusual mistakes, but very human ones. And those are the ones that just, I just got to get better. Well, if it makes you feel any better, we've had a few investors on this show that also pass on Stitch Fix. When I chatted with Jason Stouffer, he said that one of his biggest learnings as an early stage investor through the years is not to focus too much on traction when analyzing opportunities. I wanted to hear how you think about traction. There's so many variables to that, depending on the stage or whatever, but the, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll recalibrate and say, we want to see progress. And, and, and progress can be in the form of like, you know, if you're building a product or in hardware, it just it takes time to do that stuff. So, so what is that? I can almost better define it by what it's not. We've got 70,000 names on Facebook. And when we launch, it's going to be this. And it's like, oh, geez, that's, that's very 2012, 2013 of you. And if you look at the Harry's case, that's it. But traction, to, uh, ultimately traction is sales. It's, it's growth. And, and maybe this part where I'm supposed to say profitability, that, that's a debatable point. But like, how are you commercializing in the marketplace on that? At the same time, when you're pre-seed or seed, just coming to market. Like we're, we invested in Peloton, I think 13 months before the bike came out, uh, or about 12 months. And that company was chapter seven twice. So it just, it, it's varied. But pre-seed is usually pre-launch. We just want to get a sense of timetable and, and progress. If it, if traction is almost between rounds what do you want to see from when you invested to whether you invest again there's got to be some commercializable tenant there's a couple times where we've you know uh, reinvested without any commercial progress i think one of them is we talked to jordan in a past episode is sunday lawn sunday lawn is going to be freaking awesome and uh I, I i may not get to liquid death levels that like peter fam would on this but like sunday lawn is going to be a a phenomenal company and you just see it and they're not even a year old yet and you see it we invest in them. I think we're the first institutional check-in. And uh, over the course of six months, the entrepreneur, Coulter Lewis, who's phenomenal out of Boulder, Colorado, kind of showed proof of concept with 600 core users. And then was raising the next round to like bring it to commercialized success. With all the data he learned with real consumers and that, there are the four or five things he learned that he would tweak. We said, like, this is a no-brainer, back this guy. So it validated the premise further, and it was, it was worth well, well, it was worth the bet to get in as early as we did. In our minds, we'll we'll see. In the day, it's like other than a mark to mark, I guess you can capitalize on um, when you, you don't get money. That's how funds are raised. But Sunday is, is one of those that we're gladly that. There wasn't really traction, but it was progress. I wanted to also talk about DNVB and the future of DNVB post-COVID. Also, a couple months ago, I know there was a lot of chatter on Twitter about Casper's S1 and just wanted to hear your thoughts on it as well. Yeah, a load of stuff. And first of all, I thank you for saying DNVB 2.0 versus DTC. I think DTC, which has been around for a long time, is is so, so often miscasted. Direct-to-consumer is a channel. It's not necessarily a business model. Like Harry's and Casper aren't DTC, but they're definitely DNVP. And and the way we look at these things is actually in in DTC terms though is like we're we're on the we're right in the middle of like a, a DTC 3.0. So take a step back. DTC 1.0 was just pure access. So it was like I, I joke it was like the as seen on TV kind of model uh, on there. It was Columbia House CDs like buy one get twelve free on that side. DTC 2.0 where we we've, we've we've done pretty well on it. It's value. It's like cut out the middleman and get something at a better value. That's where Warby came in. That's where Harry's came in and many others. So it's like that 2009 to 2013, 14, Casper as well. Right now, it's a DTC 3.0. It's kind of like a service. Um, what can you do for me that um, could be more custom to me? So it's care of vitamins, um, which we're an investor. It's function of beauty, which has 54 trillion different versions of shampoo. Like 
those are things that you just can't like rinse out of repeat, so to speak. And so it's like, what kind of utility and service do you bring based on the feedback loop that DTC brings? That's what we love about DTC is you can get paying customers tell you how to do product innovation, tell you what they like, what they don't like. Care of listens to them, and they, they what Care of does a great job is you have to take the quiz every like three to six months. What happens if I get pregnant? Actually, if I get pregnant, that'd be sincerely weird. But like, if I'm a female and I'm a user of the service, I get pregnant. My needs are probably different. So Care of is super empathetic to that. So how can they better serve me as a customer on that side of it? Which is, and that's why Legacy CPG has been kind of like dull. They don't have all five senses. Their customers are the WalMarts, the Amazons, the Krogers of the world. So in terms of that, now you asked about Casper specifically, it's like what Casper did out of the gate. And when they launched, they were hoping to be the mattress for millennials in New York City. And we said, you have a much higher ceiling than that because the pain point of how people shop for mattresses is immense. And when they launched, it literally went up and to the right, like no other brand I've ever seen. And they sold in 43 states within three months. And and then you fast forward in a short amount of time, they're, they're IPOing. And, what we love to do with any, with, with people, with, with brands, with businesses, we celebrate the hell out of them until we don't want to anymore. And listen, the S1 was not a perfect Bible of how to do S1, but it's like, this is a company that's still five years young figuring things out. And so we, we've written them off because it's story over, which is, is somewhat unfair. Are there things that could have been better? Sure, there's things to be better, but uh, I would double down on any of the investments we made in a Casper and a Peloton. But it's, it's very funny in society as we celebrate success, and then there's some sort of like prominent moment, the Peloton IPO. Um, nope, we're going to crap all of them. Casper, the same thing. And I, I think over time, they're going to still prove to be sensational businesses. Um, I, don't, I don't know of any business that stays perfect for a long period of time, which goes back to why founders are so important. When you see your own blood, which every company does, how is this company going to react? Some of them just see it a little bit later stage than others. But um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like our take on it from a, how we're looking at DTC and, and DNVB, which is we, we, we love the DNVB thing, but DTC is in at the 3.0 status right now. Thanks for that. Since the DTC channel has become so expensive, brands are looking to go offline into proper retail. But I feel like now since DNVBs are a little out of favor with investors, uh, it might be more challenging for them to head into retail. What are you saying in, in, in regard to this? Yeah, I think it's going to be easier to go offline quicker. And, and the, the, the main point I make is, you know, I don't know any human being for all the data. Look how much time we spend on our phones and the Internet. I don't know any human that does 100% of their time on Facebook and Google. They still go to stores. We still buy things. The key thing we say to anybody is, like, go to where your customer needs you. We'll take a look at Ray Wellness. <clears throat> Ray is a, uh, a women's health company based out of Minneapolis, uh, two ex-Target executives with a combined 27 years experience saw a huge white space, huge white space in, in a modern women's health. They launched DTC, um, is it in a, their DTC phone on October 16th of 2019. They then were able to get into about 2,000 Target stores uh, three and a half, four months later. That was always kind of part of the plan because you know, vitamins and supplements are things that we need at different times. So if you want to go online and research, great, we're there. But it, we're also available in Target because those first three months, DTC validated who we thought our customer would be and consumer, and she shops a lot at Target. And that's why they're doing well. So there, there seems to be, we, we love black and white answers, like it's either an or, but the, the watershed moment in 2015 when Harry's went into Target, which was a brilliant move for them, um, that just showed it just like it wasn't an either or it's like you're all e-commerce or not physical retail is still a tremendous amount uh, of, of retail right now it's just there's a lot of bad retail out there right but i don't know if the world needs a direct consumer like byzine company um <laughs> on that so it's to go where your consumer needs you to the point earlier like i, I think mavron has spoken a lot about this we've studied quite a bit there's a lot of companies that get stuck in the 20 to 50 million usually like closer to 35, 40 million, where if you're only DTC, just CAC, CAC unfortunately scales as companies do. You just don't see it go down. And so human beings like go with physical. So you have to do either provide more services or different products, but you got to go to where your customer needs you. And um, being rigid about channel can be not the smartest thing in the world, in our opinion. But again, there's, there's always outliers. There's always different elements of it. But 
that's why we like the DND beat spirit is that you have feedback loop to DTC, but go into retail where you need to. Because guess what? There's there's people in Syracuse, New York, they may not you know shop the same way that New York and San Francisco people do. They will go to Target and it's like packaging and that final eight feet is where the marketing and discovery is made. Um, on that, and that's great. Uh, so it's just, we, we, we look at the holistic side of the equation versus either or. I think to your point, what you made is there's a lot of investors that seem scared right now of consumer. Last I checked, consumers, 68% of a $22 trillion GDP. We're getting whimsical. We're changing loyalties all the time. So as much as SaaS has excellent multiples on that stuff, what we know is consumer, what we love is consumer. There's still a lot of money made in consumer. So um, I, I guess our existence is starting to make us more contrarian by the day. But um, there's a lot of place being made in consumer. Well, if others think that investing consumer is contrarian, then hey, that's an opportunity. How do you think about Gen Z and millennials' needs from brands? You know, it's a, it, I'm glad that we were including Gen Z because for a while, like millennials, like everything was millennials like experiences, millennials like this. Well, like Gen X and other people like cool shit too and, and all that. So we, we look at things less as a psychographic or an age, but we look at like, who are we for? And so we, we do more of a persona-based thing that can extend out. So back in my old days in marketing, we were the marketing agency for Sony PlayStation. So our target audience wasn't a Gen X, whatever. Our target audience was a, a made-up 19-year-old who went to college and had a pretty good GPA and then went back home with all these other things. That 19-year-old was someone to attract like a 12 or 13-year-old boy that always wanted to be older. And then also to the 34-year-old that's got two kids. They're like, man, I miss being in my beanbag smoking weed and, and doing PlayStation 4. And so we do these per personas versus like millennials like cupcakes. So let's go after them in the cupcake industry. You know, there's many categories. If you look at health and beauty where millennial daughters have huge influence on their moms who want to be hip and cool and they might buy it too. So we look at less as an age element than as we look at personas and, and also what category we do it. To go more on your question, what we love about millennials and even more so what we're seeing in Gen Z is like, you have to care. You can't just sell a product, you have to stand for something more. So if you you make the greatest product in the world, but you're burning down the Amazon tree forest, I don't think you're gonna do well with this group. So sustainability is a big thing, values me a lot. Um, and, and there's always trade-offs in these things, right? Consumers of the day are irrational. I don't care if you're 14 or 40 or 400. Consumers make irrational decisions of what they prioritize. You know, when you see like people that will shop at like high-end places like Saks Fifth Avenue, but they might get their groceries at Costco because they value that. Um, with the younger set though, it just, I'll go back, values mean a lot, sustainability means a lot, it's gotta matter. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing some things in the uh, late stage millennials and I think early stage Gen Z that kind of mimics a little bit of the sixties, like flower child in some degree, like this, this, very caring, not as outwardly rebellious back then, but it's just like they're going to want things in their terms in their way, and not from a not, not from an evil perspective. But Gen Z, especially, is a little bit more sober. They've seen a financial crisis, or they've seen their parents grow up in one. They've also the generation behind them, the glass generation, when they were one or two years old, was like skipping things on an iPhone, um, like one of my kids is doing. So it's, uh, we're seeing a lot of interesting cultural elements of it, but in terms of investing consumer, we don't invest in something because it's solely X, Y, and Z uh, on that. Now, with everything I say, what I say contrarian, sometimes I'm even self-contrarian. We did invest in a company. It's still um, pre-launch. That is going after Gen Z and TikTok is going to be the main distribution channel. It's in health and beauty. That's an interesting one. You're my latest victim on this next question. Contrasting trends happen all the time. Two that I think about, especially with the younger generations, are uh, sustainability, being more mindful with how we shop, and also fast fashion. You know, due to the picture as the most important medium, which is Instagram, which is the Instagram picture, and making sure that you're in a different outfit each time you take a picture. I was curious how you think about these two things. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. And fast fashion is is just been a thing for a longer period of time, and now that's even being upended. I mean, to, to take a step back, you know, bullish is an early stage consumer VC, obviously, but we we operate and own a marketing agency. So a lot of times what we say is the least valuable thing we bring to the table is money when we invest. We bring like a world-class set of uh, talented uh, marketing people from great agencies, consultancies like AT Kearney and Deloitte and, uh, and the likes. And 
And so a few years back, we actually did a, um, a major consumer initiative on how women shop in the United States for fashion and clothes. And it was, uh, we were retained by um, uh, Ann Inc. to do it. And it was really amazing um, what we saw. This is pre-Stitch Fix IPO and, and that. And, and so we literally uh, did about 8,000 hours worth of like research. We were in the closets of 168 women for three hours doing this. So we spent a lot of time in this area. And one of the things that when there's been downturns is, you know, we saw a lot of women that they'll wear like a, a cute $10 top and bottom, but the shoes are like $600. So they don't, women don't skip on shoes overall. And you're absolutely right on that Instagram. It's like, there's a lot of people that don't want to be caught dead wearing the same thing on Instagram twice on that side of it. And so as it relates to fast fashion, where we're we seeing, which is definitely a thing, um, although some of the, the, the incumbent players are, are suffering a bit, is even the ownership of clothing, I think, is really being looked at. You know, a few years ago, there, there was a rise in the second hat market, like great companies like ThreadUp there. Now, I think you're going to see like the uh, circular fashion, whereas like, why do I need a, the same way, why do I need to own a car? There's Uber. Why do I need to own a, a vacation home or a, a home or whatever? There's Airbnb. I think the same thing is going to be said for, for fashion um, on that side and what ownership looks like. And it's going to be a version of Rent the Runway or, or something even newer to that. And, and you go back to what is Gen Z and what do a lot of millennials care about? Sustainability. So it's just like, why should I get in the ownership of clothing business where um, even in the bra business, the average woman where it had owns 17 bras, she wears four. And so why do I need to have all this stuff? Um, we, we estimate there was somewhere between 28 and 30% of clothes in, in some women's uh, closet where it still had the tags on them because they just bought it and not there. So uh, I think the relationship with clothes is absolutely going to, to change on that stuff. And there's still going to be a play for like high-end stuff. People still want that. But the ownership part, I think is going to change massively. It's going to be the next dimension of, of fast fashion or probably fashion. Can you give like an example of a competitive advantage that modern brands might have when there might not be a technical innovation in the product um, and how they were able to be successful? Actions speak louder than words. Generous, generous brands that, that actually do it and not just say it win. You know, I, I love marketing and advertising, um, but you know, part of why people hate marketing and advertising people and, put us right up there with like politicians and used car salesmen. It's just like, well, you lie to us to get us to buy things. And because in many ways, it's easier to do marketing and advertising than to change the product. You know, I, back in the day, we did marketing and advertising for General Motors cars and they weren't that good. And it's like, okay, what can we sell here on that side? Early stage companies have ability to do great acts of behavior. And, and we're seeing some of that in, in pandemic times, but it's whether it's buy a pair, give a pair or just do right by. I think the, the most seminal example that I saw early on is what Warby Parker did. Warby Parker ran advertising and they were crushed by the volumes coming out. And uh, there was like a three or four month wait time in, in many cases. They basically shut off advertising, turned it to customer service. And customer service, which is something deemed as an expense or something cast aside by big companies, they basically leveled with the consumer and saying like, hey, we, we didn't do this right, but we're going to keep you up to speed. And just, wow, I'm having a dialogue. And I, not that I want to have like a relationship and have be friends with a lot of brands, but modern brands like act the part of like, hey, you know, it, it's fair. It's like, it, it, this isn't right. We're going to do something about it versus like making it like some sort of obstacle course to get a refund back or anything. And so I think before, whereas the brands and corporations kind of held the, held the power it's it's i hate to say the consumer's control it's so so trite but that's literally what's going on now so the great brands just do the right thing and they're not perfect but they're meant to be imperfect and that's why we think customer service is a huge asset and in many ways more important than marketing and advertising especially early on and that that doesn't mean those things always scale um bill Gurley had some some great thoughts on that but it just you know, early stage, if you do right by people, people will keep coming back. I think those are some great points and certainly helpful to new brands. So what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? We, we talked about contrarian. I think most VCs I say right now, we're, we're all too afraid to be unliked by someone. We're too afraid to stand for something. And it's because we all want club deals. And we all make nice. And there's just like, there's, there's a little bit, we participate in this, a little bit junior high kind of clickiness. 
It's just like, let's just go be ourselves and stand for what we stand for and call people out and police it. We all put our best selves forward on our medium posts and our Twitter profiles and all that stuff too. But it's just like, I would love a little bit more honesty. And that's said from someone who's done marketing and advertising through his career. So the uh, irony there is not lost to me, but just like, there's always things like, oh, sub, bad behavior from X, Y, and Z. Well, I think if we call people out and maybe risk some retribution, maybe um, th this would be maybe a healthier sport. But, but, but like in any category, anything that could be done better, it's just like, what, what can I do is go out and play our style of ball and do things our way, which is imperfect, but hopefully attracts more good things than, than not. But that's what I'd say. It's just like full tilt. Like we're, comp we're competing against each other. We're not always loving each other. So it's just like maybe a little less grinning when we're, we don't really mean it, but that could be a little bit trite as well. Yeah, I think that's another great point. I mean, you know, you don't want to piss anybody off because how VCs typically invest is, is in uh, syndicates. But, you know, at the end of the day, you are competing against other VCs for deals. And I can understand that sometimes that can get lost. Has coronavirus changed how you're seeing opportunities and where you're spending your time? Yeah, without that, we're seeing less opportunities. Um, listen, we're, we're, we're in the midst of raising our next fund, which has gone well, but it's just like, there's certain conversations people don't want to have right now or just aren't, aren't right. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're, it, it's, it's hard to do diligence for us right now, especially since we do so much white to the eyes and as good as zoom is, it's not the same. Um, also valuations. Uh, I would say I, I sense there's some punitive thinking at least from VCs that like, well, we've had a high valuation for a long time. Let, let's get this really cheap. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to like stay the course and maybe wait a little bit longer, but we're seeing less. Um, some things that were going on before this or started during it, we, we've been honest. It's just like, it might take us a little bit more time. Yes, we're spending more time with our portfolio companies. Yes, we're doing those things. We're still open for business. It is just harder to do diligence right now um, when you can't meet people live. And that's such a big part of it. Or when we go to third party sources, like in, in the retail world, it's just like they're overly influenced understandably by what's going on right now so versus thinking macro but listen great uh, i think it's something like the s p 500 51 or 52 percent of those companies were birthed during a during a downturn it's like there's no reason why great companies get get started today but like cash is tighter because people are scared human nature is when people are scared they retrench a little bit and um listen great companies are great companies i'm, I'm not going to go crazy on like valuations and, and that stuff it's this is a seven to 10 year relationship we're building with entrepreneurs. As much as the accelerated speed of doing term sheets is, is, is hastened, we still have to do right by our LPs and ourselves. So still open for business, but it, it is harder, but we're seeing less. Appreciate you actually saying that you're seeing less because a lot of, I've heard so much on Twitter how VCs are saying, we're staying the course, we're, we're open for business and all this stuff like that. And so uh, I've- and, and we are, it's like, listen, it's like, I, I can't say VCs have to be more honest and then, then then go to my best self. It's like, we, we've seen a reduction. It, like, starting March 21st, uh, we started seeing a reduction just in overall like flow activity and whatever. And then listen, when you have, you have less conferences and you have less get-togethers where like the word of mouth goes in, you're, you're going to have that. But um, there's still interesting things coming our way. There's We're seeing a lot of bridge rounds that were um, things that we saw in the past that might've been too expensive coming to them because capital is such a big deal right now. There's a bit of musical chairs going on um we're rethinking some things like do we do one or two less deals and put them in our portfolio companies like do we do the series a or do a bridge on, on that side of it because we know x y and z has home run potential um you know it's um this is where i come up with these are unprecedented times and it's just we we have to do what's right for the long-term element of it and that, if that means we have to kind of like kind of go away from not go away from but kind of bend uh, where we typically in, get involved because we see great business, we have to. But we're, we're still looking. This is a seven to ten year decision on anything that we make, and and this too shall pass. I'm a believer it's going to pass. I don't know how well this will age. I think this will pass sooner than later. Quite frankly, that makes a lot of sense. What's one company in your anti portfolio? Did you learn anything from not investing? For example, to this change your approach when it came to due diligence or just how you perceived companies? Just wanted to hear like what what learnings you had, if if any. I don't think there is any other than what I spoke to earlier. There's certain things like I just wasn't fast enough to the ball. I think in our in our to to misanswer the question, there is a company in our portfolio where we're we're so drawn to the entrepreneur and the founder and. Uh, when we talk about we're looking for great founders and great premises and and uh you know what it just 
I think we didn't do the diligence and this is way back in our, our first fund. Sometimes you can, you, you can run the risk of over-believing and maybe not answering some of the quest, great questions when you see such a, like a riveting founder. And uh, I think we fell victim to that, but listen, this is an asset class that 70% of our decisions are supposed to be failures. So, um, and in over 10 years, we have a 36% mortality rate, which is to brag about mortality rate, not the best time to be doing that, but it's like, that's pretty good. So it's just like there's mistakes we've made, but um, you know, a stitch fix certainly is up there. But I, 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 I stand by that less out of being a stubborn Leo than I am. Like we were trying to do right by one of our portfolio companies, but it's the ones, the things that came out, it's the ones we don't see, or the ones we don't see on time. That's the stuff that gets me really <sighs> than anything else. That's a great point. What's your most recent investment, and what makes you super excited about it? Uh, I will say this, Ray Wellness and Sunday Lawn. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe it. Sunday Lawn is just, uh, uh, again, launched April of last year and, and it's a great founder out of Boulder, Colorado. The American Lawn, our grass is the third largest crop in the US and we put all these horrible chemicals on it. And the same way as, as we have talked about like GMO and organic food, what gets touched by our skin absorbs much faster. And so uh, I think there's some people in Monsanto and Scott's that, uh, or going to be a little bit worried by, by what um, Sunday's up to. And then Ray Wellness, which is like, I've spoken about that before. I think they're they're excellent. Sunday Grills is launching soon. Or sorry, Sunday Grills. Spark Grills is launching soon, a company out of Boulder that's uh, reinventing the grill. And the thing why I'm excited by all of them is where they're not located. They're not in San Francisco. They're not in New York. One is in Boulder. Two are in Boulder and Colorado, and one's in Minneapolis. And the thing that excites us is that... Um, there's a lot of great entrepreneurs out there that don't have to be in a top five DMA. And that's what's really, whether we live in thanks to Shark Tank or all these things is we're seeing some really interesting entrepreneurs sprouting up where they're not supposed to be because they're not in Palo Alto. They're not in New York. They're not in Boston. I mean, look what's happening in Los Angeles in a short amount of time. It's freaking awesome. So what excites us is what's going on in, in um, some up and coming towns. Like watch out what's going on in Nashville and Austin. Madison, Wisconsin, Columbus. So there's some great things going on there. But um, those three companies that I mentioned are, are we're super excited about. Sorry, sorry not to have one favorite child, but three um, on the on the newest on the newest front. I know Jordan Nov is also super excited about Sunday Lawn. And, and I, I give credit to Tusk because it's like I we we introduced Sunday to a lot of VCs, and most of New York and San Francisco didn't get it because they didn't have lawns. And the day I start thinking I'm the consumer of it is a stupid day. And Jordan says, like, help me understand. I don't have a lawn, but why is this a thing? And, and, and I got into it. He, he looked at the numbers. He's like, wow, this could be a this could be something great. So and and obviously they're they're a great investor with something differentiated as well, too. So yeah, Jordan, Jordan, we're excited to have him on the cap table and um and excited by a bunch of our companies, obviously. I'm glad you brought up how a lot of these companies are located in secondary tertiary markets not the new york and you know bay areas wondering what advice you have for founders that are located in secondary and tertiary markets and folks who don't have a vc network oh we love those people peloton did not have a vc network peloton didn't get investment from vcs because they did like a ppm they didn't do the beautiful powerpoint deck you know um revtown out of pittsburgh a jeans company that's just like proven entrepreneur, a proven executive that didn't know the VC game, but knew how to build a business. So more and more, it's easier when you have pipelines from the, the Whartons and the HBSs and the Stanfords, and we, we have invested in all those things. But more and more, we're trying to market ourselves that we're for disruptive consumer. And we're, we're trying to get people to raise their hands and shoot us an email or you know, on LinkedIn, there's always, we're always like one or two degrees away from each other. So help find us in that. So we, last year we looked at 3000 deals, which might be, uh, we think was pretty good. It's up from the year before and you have to to dig through a lot of stuff, but you can smell it when there's that chip on the shoulder entrepreneur that's thought of things and, and where someone who's as equally paranoid as they are passionate. And I don't mean that any ill will towards like men, mental wellness or mental health, but just they have it and they have an idea that's worth exploring. And, um, more and more, it's just like that. They're, they're going to come out of college towns. Carnegie Mellon has got a lot of talent. So why can't Pittsburgh be great? Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin has got a great, great engineering program stuff. Austin, Texas, which hasn't really had a lot of VC stuff, but yet it has University of Texas, has a lot of young, modern, tax-free state. Why, why can't great things come from there? So 
we, we're not resourced. There's a smaller fund to tackle those areas, but it's like we we just five of our last seven deals came from outside the um, the coasts, and we're super excited by that. But that doesn't mean great things can't come out of New York. We're we're along New York and and anywhere there's great entrepreneurs, but uh, it's hard to do, uh, and we're trying to canvas and and do more of that stuff so we find it. And quite frankly, relying on our entrepreneurs that might know someone. So they say, oh, you should talk to, to one of our investors. It's, it's very important that we have a strong NPS score um, in the people that we've invested in. So what percentage of your portfolio companies you've invested in came from founders that actually reached out to you cold? Let's see, over 33 companies, it's about 60% were cold. And it's more in the back half on that side. 38% of our founding teams have females. 33% of our companies have female CEOs, um, which is higher. But, um, you know, it's just when we do cold, it's like we usually look for like warm validation. Like, what do you think of this person or that person? So in the beginning, we were almost like 100% um, thanks to great referral networks of first round capital and others. But now it's like, God, yeah, it's about just about 60%. Wow, that's amazing. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders of B2C businesses? You got to empathize with your, your who empathize. Empathy, we think, is a, a killer app, so to speak. You know, those who display empathy towards the consumers and their customers that they're serving usually do well. It's also empathizing with, like, to some degree, the VC across the table, which not enough the other way. But when I say don't listen, if, if, ever, if each entrepreneur listened to each VC, it's just like they would get, they would build the worst company would go to, to hell. You know, VCs don't run companies as a whole, right? So I, I hate all VC boards. I think that's a really bad thing. I think it's just like, it's too much of one thing. Independent board members are great, but empathize the customer, but, but don't overly listen. It, when I mean, you think about it, it, it's really tough. What we ask entrepreneurs to do is like, keep your head down and bulldoze. You have to build and da, 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 and then fail fast, which I hate. Listen, pivot, make sure you're listening to that. It's like, how do you do both things one human being? Like we're literally asking people to be a business version of bipolar. And that is that is completely unfair. Um, so it's just like when I say empathize, it's like maybe realize where it's coming from. But um, you know, there's there's a great quote from one of our LPs, the founder of Under Armour, Kevin Plank. And he said, Under Armour succeeded because he was naive enough to not know what they couldn't accomplish. You know, he didn't come from the fashion industry. He didn't come from the apparel industry. He's like, why can't it do? But he, but he was like focused on the athlete and, and that side. And I think it's a tough thing to do because in many ways, it's like, well, if we want to raise money, we have to play the VC game versus, you know, um, one of the things I've said way too often probably is I think there's two great business movies of all time. One is Godfather for obvious reasons. The other one is Office Space. And it's funny how I think I'm operating more off Office Space where there's a little bit of the fuck it. I'm just gonna do what I think is right kind of element to it that is that just works. And if you spend too much time, like what is what do I want this other person to what do they want to hear based on the stuff they've done or whatever, you're gonna lose your own plot. So I'd say empathize, but don't listen, which I know sounds counterintuitive or a collision, but but very purposely so. Empathize but don't listen. I really like that. And it's hard because it's like there's no one right way of doing it. Like an ideal investor for one investor. Uh, for one entrepreneur might be someone who's hands-on and is almost uh, a chairman of the company. We look at our roles to provide perspective. It's just like the pressure test. Like we, we, try, to, we try to stay naive and fire questions like, well, what about this? What about this? What about the consumer and those things? And just offer up a perspective versus mandating X, Y, or Z. And again, we're not, we don't own 30, 20 to 30% stakes in companies, but you know, it's just, there's, there's not a one way to, and, and by no means am I damning how other VCs do it. I mean, who am I to do it? Uh, we're much smaller in that, but it's, it's just our point of view and perspective on things, but there's no one silver bullet way, which would be easy, but there just really isn't. And so different entrepreneurs just different need a different level of support or quite frankly, a lack thereof. Absolutely. There's no one size that fits all. So what's one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? Inspire? I don't know. And I, I've listened to other podcasts. I'm like, wow, that book is so smart. I, I don't have it. And, and it's, um, I have ADD, so I read more like magazines and stuff like that. But the, I think related to book, I think the thing that really um, book-wise, so I'm going to definitely twist your, your question here, is done a lot of work with Steve Nash Foundation and, and the Bezos family who mutually believe in this. But I found out when you read one book to a two-year-old at bedtime, when you read just one book, it could take three minutes. The vocabulary of that kid by the time they're five will be 200 words. 
Those who don't, it could be like 40 to 50 words. And so uh, I'll twist to say like the power of just reading to the books and to the mind of a, of a kid is just mind numbing. And, and I say that as someone who is probably pretty selfish, who did pretty well in his career early on. And then when I had kids, they taught me everything about venture capital, they, about managing people. I could tell a 10-month-old it's time to go to bed, but that doesn't mean he's, he or she's going to do it. It's ability to lead. What, what kids have taught me, and I'll use the book example, is, is that it's not what I can do. It's what I can help motivate and other people help motivate to happen what and help other people to accomplish and i i don't know if i've read that in in any other book i think i i like books that have a huge amount of like empathy or whatever i, I can i only read nonfiction. I, i'm the worst on that side but it just i'd say it's the power of reading books to kids because of, of that side and and how that correlates to management but that is i'm not trying to you know be Mother Teresa here or anything like that, but I, I don't know if I have that one book that really inspired me the same way I, I think past guests have. But um, it's ability that I think you can go further in your career if you sincerely enjoy helping other people learn, whether you're a founder of a company, whether you're a VC or whatever. And that's the, the more generous you get, which probably comes with age, I, I suppose, but the better things around you can be. I have that for a meta thing, but it's like, it's the truth. I, I, if it sounds contrived, I apologize, but I, 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 I think it's kind of true. I don't, I don't know if it's inspired, but I think I've been inspired by people's actions when you go back to first round capital and, and that stuff. And I'm just not smart enough to be, um, to have that book answer. So I apologize. Yeah, well, even though you you uh, neglected to mention any book, uh, I agree that generosity with time and teaching and learning from others are certainly more inspirational than any book. So, uh, yeah, no, I, th I thought that was great. Well, Mike, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much again for coming on and, and for the conversation. I know, and, and congrats to you for building a franchise in, in, in what is a short amount of time. And I know it doesn't feel a short amount of time, but it's like, the amount of stuff that you've done and it's a great listening. Like I, I was listening to Mike Dubow who I've come to know over the past year and a half. I was like, Oh, I really like what he's doing. And I'm going to steal some of that stuff. And it just, uh, you, you always say it's like, we, we're living in an age where generosity wins and it's just like, uh, that, that's what you're doing. So um, kudos to you and everything you're doing. And there you have it. I had such a blast learning from Mike and I hope you did as well. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Duda. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.